Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the great actor Jared Harris chats to me about his father, Richard Harris, about the Sky Arts documentary, The Ghost of Richard Harris. Plus, we look at an intriguing new pigeon documentary. Yes, that's right, a documentary all about the business of flying pigeons called Million Dollar Pigeons. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Now, I suppose the big TV event for people of a certain disposition this week is the World Cup, of which I have been watching some of it. Uh, Not all of it, because perhaps like you, I'm deeply conflicted about watching it because of where it's taking place and all the well-told issues that you've heard about it this week. So, uh, you know, I was thinking back to watching the World Cup in 1986 when I was a mere 11 or 10, actually, and uh, the joy of seeing Maradona and all those goals and just watching it now. There's just so much water under the bridge. And as Bob Dylan says, other stuff too. Uh, And... Look, this isn't a sports show and those arguments about the merits of watching it have been, you know, discussed all week long on the station. However, there is a related TV matter in that there is a pretty great documentary on Netflix at the moment, which I watched this week, I suppose for you guys, but also for myself and the timing called FIFA Uncovered, which you may have seen popping up on your feed if you do have a Netflix account, which I know a lot of you do. And it is all about the house of cards that was FIFA. And it paints a pretty depressing story if you're a fan of the beautiful game. But I think you might be interested in it if you're just a fan of watching, you know, true crime documentaries, because that's in essence what this is. And if you're interested in human psychology or how, you know, as Sting says in another song, men go crazy in congregations, because this is a documentary about men going crazy and going corrupt. FIFA was a kind of amateur organization and a a not-for-profit organization when it originally began. And describing it as a not-for-profit organization is possibly the cruelest misnomer I've ever come across if you watch FIFA Uncovered because it traces the story from about the mid-70s when uh, the president of FIFA at the time, a a Brazilian guy called Havilland, who realized that FIFA could become this global empire which could make lots of money through sponsorship deals and the hosting of World Cups. And what follows then is a give or take 40-year journey through the downright corruption of FIFA. Uh, And it's peopled by this, you know, gathering of characters. And and some of them really are characters in the cruelest sense of the phrase. And it looks at how bids were awarded for games and World Cups and the brown envelopes, the pass hands, how, how sponsorship deals were worked out. There's a whole thing in the 80s about this particular company to do with Adidas. And it was just eye-watering the level of corruption. And they interview some of the big players, including Seth Blatter 
and representatives of guitar. It's not a easy watch for all sorts of reasons, but you do have to pay a lot of attention. There's a lot of detail in this and it's, you know, you can't be fiddling with your phone or fiddling with anything. You have to, you have to watch it. I had to rewind it a few times to follow the narrative thread because by the time there was 21 arrests in the FBI investigation in 2015, by the time that happens, a lot of different strands have come together. So you have to pay a lot of attention. It's a rewarding documentary, uh, a depressing one. It's like quibble is that, you know, they interview Seth Blatter and Blatter, although banned from FIFA, has never been criminally charged with anything and has uh, is technically innocent in the eyes of the law. Huge questions about the fact that so much corruption took place under his watch. None of the corruption was ever traced back directly to his door. But in this documentary, they ask him about that, but one would like him to be challenged a lot more on it as well. Uh, they also feature towards the end in, in episode four. It's four episodes, I should say. The fourth one, I suppose, culminates in this FBI investigation and subsequent arrests and where we're at now. And it does interview Gianni Infantino, who's the current president of FIFA. And again, you would have liked to have seen more far-reaching questions with him. This is the same man who, a few days before the World Cup, gave this bizarre rambling monologue about how we're all guitar we're all immigrant workers, we're all gay today. Uh, strange stuff. So it's a quibble in FIFA Uncovered that maybe they didn't press some of the players a little harder. But it is a very good watch, I have to say. FIFA Uncovered. And not just for the football lover in your life, but for the fan of a good documentary, FIFA Uncovered. Although depressing, if you're in love with the beautiful game, it's certainly a a good watch. And it's now streaming on Netflix. Now, I quickly want to tell you, slash remind you of this. Hey, it's a very dangerous lot. Oh, yeah, sure. A lot of murders. (laughs) It's not even four. I know. I have to see you again tomorrow. <laughs> it is tomorrow. Perfect. Where are we going? Mm. Oh, can I go? I'm, um, I'm in Rocket. To where? Uh, Cancun. I love Cancun! Now, that is a clip from Pam and Tommy, which is on Disney Plus and has been for a good few months. We talked about it briefly when it came out earlier in the year, and I gave it a pretty good thumbs up. Just want to remind you of it because I was talking to Pat Kenny about it this week in our series Boxed. So I'd cause to basically rewatch the whole thing and remind myself of it. And it really is a really entertaining piece of TV, making some interesting points as well about about maybe victim blaming and dare I say it, slut shaming to use the modern parlance of the day because in case you don't know, Pam and Tommy is about the infamous relationship who you heard there incidentally between Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, that famed and notorious rock band back in the day and they recorded a home video, eight minutes of which was basically a sex tape and this fictionalized series based on a Rolling Stone article is all about that tape. The man who stole the tape, a disgruntled carpenter who'd done work at their Malibu mansion, who Tommy Lee refused to pay. It's about the finding of that tape. It's kind of a high story. It's also a story of 
this doomed love affair that happened between Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. And it's also, and this is where it gets very interesting, a study of, I suppose, what it was like to be a woman uh, caught so for, for want of a better phrase, on a sex tape back in the 90s because Pamela Anderson, as I say, was utterly shamed by it because of a male-dominated media. And Tommy Lee at the time was seen as this kind of rock god hero. Uh, and it looks at that and it looks at how Pamela Anderson's career was in lots of ways ruined by it and Tommy Lee's wasn't. So it's a great piece of TV that has some deep stuff going on about privacy, celebrity, misogyny in the entertainment industry. People at the time probably thought Pam and Tommy was just sleazy entertainment, but having rewatched it this week, there's a lot more going on in it. Uh, it's a very clever watch. It's a very good watch. There is a slight element of sleazy entertainment to it, but I think it's a very good eight-parter and special word has to go out to Lily James who plays Pamela Anderson because she does an absolutely amazing job. She's note perfect as Pamela Anderson and brings depth to it. And Sebastian... Stan, who plays Tommy Lee, is brilliant as well. They almost seem indecipherable from their actual characters that they're playing, and yet they didn't do impersonations. So Pam and Tommy, a very good watch, which I'm just reminding you about because I had cause to watch it again. Now, if you've been watching that or FIFA Uncovered or not watching the World Cup or anything you've been watching on the big screen or small screen, do let me know, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Up next, Jared Harris on his late father, Richard Harris. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. I'm John Fardy. Now, last Saturday on Sky Arts and still very much available for you to watch on Sky is The Ghost of Richard Harris, a thrilling, compelling documentary all about the great and now late actor Richard Harris. It inv interviews all sorts of people like Russell Crowe and our own Stephen Ray. It also interviews his sons, Richard Harris's sons, and chief among them is Jared Harris, uh, the brilliant actor in his own right from everything from Mad Men to Chernobyl, in which he was astounding. And the documentary is a look back at Richard Harris's life through the eyes of the people who loved him, but also with a wealth of, of Richard Harris interviews and voiceover. Uh, it's a great watch. Jared Harris was highly involved in it. Uh, it was directed by Adrian Sibley, uh, but these guys, the sons, Jared in particular, were very involved and, and gave it its blessing and are kind of at the heart of it. So I got to talk to Jared earlier in the week about his dad and a bit more besides. Jared, lovely to meet you. Uh, you know, I spoke to Eve Hewson a couple of years ago, Bono's daughter, and I spoke to Ridley Scott's son last year for a documentary. And the last thing these people want to talk about is their famous parents. And I get it. And it was the last thing I wanted to ask them about. And I'm wondering with you, is it because you've had considerable success of your own or is it just, you know, you're, you're not 21 now, you've been around a while. Do you not care you're just happy to share memories of your dad with the world well you know funny enough i get asked a, a sort of variation of that question whenever i do press for things in the england particularly and in ireland and it's sort of along the lines of aren't you fed up with talking about your dad <laughs> actually the truth is i'm not i love him i miss him and i'm delighted to talk to people about him and quite often you find out that the person you're talking to had an encounter with him and that turns out to be 
you know, hilarious as well and something that you didn't know. I yeah. was just up in Canada and um, uh, at, in Ottawa and I met an old school chum of dad's who was a year younger than him. And he was telling me some fantastic stories that I'd never heard before. So okay, you know, I, it was thrilling. I, also, the difference here is, of course, that this was sort of more on our terms. And we put all of our faith and trust in Adrian Sibley. Mm. Um, so, you know, and the, the deal we made with Adrian was that Adrian had to have final cut and that we would tell the truth in these, you know, those, those uh, clips that you have from these sort of sitting in a chair interviews that we did. They were about four or five hours long. And we agreed that we would tell absolutely the truth and we would trust him as to what, which pits he wanted to use and to make mm -hmm. sure that it was, you know, it was truthful but respectful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's a couple of things about it that struck me. I I thought I knew a fair bit about your dad because because I'm a big fan and have been since I was taken to see the field as as a kid by our school teacher. And I have a story about your dad. I didn't meet him, but I met someone. So I'll come to that because you're clearly you're used to those, so it won't be a problem. But you know this image of him as the as the bon vivant and you know the well told story of the the benders he would go on and all in my head i always think of that as maybe not the greatest dad in the world then but what i loved in this was so many people said he adored his children he really did and showed up you know that he showed up for you guys a lot is is that your sense of it because you know better than anyone he seemed to be a great dad and i did, hadn't realized that I mean our relationships with him changed over the course of our lives. I really don't have a memory of him um, when we were at that first home that we lived in, in Bedford Gardens. Mm -hmm. um, and he was off pursuing his career and, you know, earning a living and putting a roof over our heads and um, creating the opportunities for us as well. Um, but I, as I think he, he, that changed and he got more interested in, as um, Eva said, there's a certain point in his life where he really did become very focused on wanting to have proper relationships with us. So, um, you know, we got to know him better. It's difficult. And when you're a child, you don't know your parents, mm -hmm. you know. They're these sort of mythical creatures, you know, to you. Yeah. It isn't until you become an adult and you can accept the fact that your parents aren't perfect. They have faults. You can forgive them for having those faults. And then you can get to a point where you can just have a proper relationship with them and get to know them as, a, as people, you know, mm. as individuals. Yeah. So, and, and did you have that in your adult life with your dad? Do, do you felt you, yeah. you related as adult to adult for the latter part of his life? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was never under any, uh, uh, any doubt in my mind that he absolutely loved us, mm. you know, um, and he would, he would organize his life to, uh, make it possible for us to, to, when we would go see him when we were at school. So when we were at school, you had specific holidays and they were holidays that were split with my mother. So he would have us for half of those holidays and he would either not take a job during those holidays, or if he was taking a job, he'd try and organize it, that his schedule was light then, or we'd come visit him and. You know, and he and when we were with him, um, we were the focus of his life, and and all the rules went out the window. You know, I mean, it was been quite frustrating for my mother because she was trying to instill rightly some kind of discipline, you know, and a sort of 
code of conduct of how you behave in public and how you behave with other people. And then when we got with dad, there was just anything went, you know? Yeah. We, we yeah. could be kids. You're free to be children and, and just to be childlike, you know, yeah. when you're young. Yeah. You know, another thing that I was struck by in the documentary that I hadn't really thought of was before, he seemed you know, a lot of the times, very in, in later life, when I saw him in interviews, particularly on things like the Late Late Show with Gay Bourne, uh, quite happy-go-lucky, let's say. And there was clearly a very pessimistic side to him that I hadn't realised. There's a lot of voiceover. And at one point, he's he's almost saying something yeah. along the lines, the world is broken, you know, and there's very I little we can do I to fix agree. it. And I agree. And I, you know, I've thought about where that was coming from, because that was true at that moment, you mm. know. I mean, he was a hopeful person, but I think that um, he also was sort of personality that always, um, he backed the underdog, always. And I think that the thing that he found disappointing was for all of the moralizing that, that we do in the West, if you like, and with our ideas as evolved human beings and society getting better, there's still so much misery and still so many people left behind. And um, I think that he found that very disappointing, and, mm. and it, it's tied in as well with his faith, which is because he was brought—he was brought up a Catholic, and, and even though he had his own, you know, relationship with that, that he figured out um, he would, could be very scathing about the church, but you weren't allowed to say anything negative, you know, um, about it. Um, mm. And I think that I think on that level as well, he there was a sense of disappointment behind it. Mm. Um, you know that one of the stories that uh, I remember, he he, there was a, a a drinking club down the road from the Savoy Hotel that he used to go pop into, and when he would come out, he stopped by the Kentucky Fried Chicken on the um on the Strand, and when he came, and there was a bunch of kids. It was during that period of time. There was a lot of a lot of young homeless, and um, so he went and bought them buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's about sort of two in the morning. And he sits down and he chats with them. And um, the police come along to move them on and kick them out. And they see him there in this sort of dirty old raincoat or, you know, long mm. overcoat. They go, come on, Pops, we'll give you a lift home. You know, are you staying in a DOS house or something? He goes, yes, I am. He goes, Thank you so much. I'll accept your lift. He gets in the car. He has them drop him off at the Savoy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, how very Harris-esque. Uh, yes. Very good. Listen, my story, it's its 12 degrees of separation, but I was talking to Jim Sheridan about two years ago. And as I mentioned, I adored the field. And your dad told this story again on the Late Late Show with Gabor and about how Jim didn't want him, but he showed up to the interview and transformed into the bull over the 30 minutes and mm. slowly put on the costume. And I said to Jim, is that true? And he said, no, it isn't. No, it wasn't. Just ask Jared. He'll tell you. He was always <laughs> telling lies. <laughs> or he might have said lies, but telling stories. But what I really liked about the documentary was he, from the voiceover that, that, that the director uses in it, he was aware of that. He was aware that oh, he yeah. fictionalized himself. Was that your sense yeah. of it? Yeah. Well, as I said in the documentary, he would often say that the greatest part he ever played was Richard Harris. Mm, um, yeah. there, there was there was an awareness to some extent um, uh, that there was a it was a you know a created personality, and there's there's also this thing that my mother um, picked up on, identified in her autobiography, 
she said that about um, Dickie Harris never left Ireland and Richard Harris never went back. Mm. And um, there, there was this perception, and he's still, if you talk to his relatives in Limerick, they still refer to him as Dick or Dickie. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there's an idea of that, that, that there was a fabricated uh, personality to some extent, or maybe a sense of freedom that he found once he left. Mm. That, um, um, but, you know, uh, what's delightful is you, you knew all these stories. And, of course, we'd all, me and my brothers, we'd always have, we'd take all these stories with a grain of salt. But <laughs> you find, you'd find find out that they were mostly true most of the mm. time, you know. Right. And then the story about showing up to the rugby match in Cardiff Arms Park and, you know, the Rolls Royce, with, then they, he was mistaken for Prince Charles. It's actually true. Wow. You know, um, the, uh, and I suspect that there's some element of that story that was true in that um, it is true that they wanted him to play the priest. It is true that he didn't want to play the priest. It's true that he wanted to play the bull, but he couldn't because Ray was alive and it was Ray's part. Mm. And that um, once he met he met them um, at the house in hotel, he he had decided in his mind that he needed to persuade them that he was the person for the bull because they had said no before. Mm. But probably in Jim and in Jim's mind, you know, um, um, they they had shown up basically to talk to him about playing the bull. They just hadn't said it yet. Yeah, okay, yeah. So there's some sort of mix of these stories where, and of course in my dad's mind, um, it's a better story. It's also, in terms of the sort of the myth of his life, if you like, he did exactly, he actually did that to get the role of Arthur in the movie of Camelot because they weren't, it it was Burton's role. He got it on stage and Burton didn't want to do it and the studio was chasing Burton. So dad knew that the part was up for grabs. Lawrence Harvey had played it in London and thought, well, they're going to come to me next. So my father started bombarding um, the director and uh, Jack Warner with telegrams saying, you know, how he was the best person for the role and everything. They weren't interested in it. You yeah. know? And he, he found out that um, uh, the director was going to be at a dinner party in Palm Springs. And he went down to the house he paid a waiter to swap clothes with him. It was roughly the same size. And by this time, all of Hollywood is a buzz. Is who's going to play this part? Mm. You know, it was one of those big roles that they were now, Burton wasn't doing it, so everyone was second-guessing it. And so it was a conversation at the table, and as he was serving the food, he goes, there's really only one person for this role. It's Richard Harris. And the director <laughs> looks up and sees him and goes, for God's sakes, he says, how can I get away from you? Will you ever leave me alone? And he says, yes. He says, if you give me an audition, he says, that's it. I just have to give you an audition. He said, no, I'm not asking you to give me the part. I'm asking you to give me the opportunity to prove to you that I am the best person for his role. He said, fine, I'll screen test you. And the rest is history. And he got the part, yeah. Incredible, incredible. So Tell he's me- done it before, you know. It's yeah. A, it fit. It, yeah, the kind of the mythology of his it, life. Yeah, in his own universe. Is or what your sense of it, was the bull or was this sporting life or was it 
when he took to the stage, Aiden Crow. What was his towering achievement as he saw it? Because I wasn't sure which of the roles he loved the best. Do you have a sense of that? Because there was a couple he was like, I got the impression with the documentary, man, I got it and I proved them wrong and I'm there. So there was this sporting life, there was the bull. Then there was the play, uh, Henry the Fourth. Was it Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth? Where he came out and you weren't sure what was going on, which seemed yeah. remarkable. Do you have a sense which one mattered the most to him? I don't, I, I, not, I don't, although I do know that the Pirandello play mm. was very, very important to him mm. because he wanted to prove that he had those chops still. And it was, yeah. a, I mean, it's a, a fearfully difficult play. In a difficult it seemed, part. yeah. Um, and he wanted us to, I mean, he said he wanted us to see that he was the real deal. Yeah. Um, because we'd obviously seen him in movies and he was great. We'd seen him in Camelot, you know, and he was fantastic in that, but it's light entertainment, if you like. And he wanted to prove that he, he had the proper chops where he could challenge the, the great English classical mm. actors. And in a way, it's sad. I, I mean, in my mind, there's a turning point that happened in his career, and that was um, he, he did the Pirandello play and he'd done the field. And after he did the play... He was buzzing with ideas and enthusiasm and all these Shakespeare plays he was going to do and classical theatre and Ibsen plays he was going to do. And, um, and of course, the Thelma Holt and, uh, was keen to do it and Duncan Walden, both very excited by the idea. Then he got nominated for the Oscar and he didn't get it. And he mm. spent the next sort of four, four years trying to find the role that was going to land him the Oscar. By the time... Wrestling Ernest Hemingway happened, and then it, that Oscar run didn't happen for that movie. He'd spent too long away from the stage, and he'd lost his. Strange to say, he'd lost his confidence because you you need to have a certain you have to have a a, a very yeah you know, physical stamina to be mm -hmm. able to pull that sort of stuff off. And he'd got that by touring Camelot for the seven or eight years. So um, in a way, uh, there was a there was almost like a different his career could have gone in a different direction um, if he had pursued the, the theatrical opportunities that had been presented to him after the Pirandello play. Okay. He got distracted by the Oscar again. Uh, but do you think he was a actively, when he didn't win for the field, he was chasing to, to get his hands on an after, Oscar? I, I know he was because okay. we, you know, we would read scripts. He'd, he'd say, what about this one? I, mem I remember he handed me the script for wrestling Ernest Hemingway. He said, this is it. This is the one. Okay. And I read it. And I went, this is great, Dad. Who's playing the other part? And he said, Robert Duvall. I went, uh-oh. You know, Robert Duvall is a master of understatements. Mm. A master. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I, you know, I said, wow, you, 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 you have your hands full with Robert. Yeah. You know? Listen, I, I only have a couple of minutes left, and it's glorious yeah. spending time reminiscing about your father. But can I, can I just ask you about you? Uh, I spoke to the – I keep name-dropping. I'm sorry. It's, it must be your father's ghost, you know? Okay. But uh, I spoke to the film critic David Smith a while ago and he said the best movie of 2021 I think it was was the last four episodes of Ozark this was a great phrase I've remembered a long time and I'm cognizant that I'm talking to someone who's been in two of the greatest TV shows of the last 15 years with Mad Men and Chernobyl in which you were particularly in Chernobyl not that I enjoy Mad Men but I thought you were stunning in Chernobyl I'm just wondering your sense of 
TV versus movies. Are you worried about what's happening to cinema? The fact that great actors like you are getting these meaty roles that can be told over like a couple of seasons or whatever. Do you despair, wonder, have concern for cinema? Well, first of all, I'd throw the terror into that list. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, it was a fantastic piece of yeah. storytelling. Um, am I worried about that? You know, I, I mean, you know, that it, it, it's adapting to the new opportunities and um, it, it tells you something that there's a lot of movie stars who are now chasing the great roles in limited series. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the reason is, is, you know, that the... the the kind of, the sort of storytelling that I was attracted to in the 70s with those great movies, they, the studio stopped making those films. And, um, and, you know, I understand why it's very expensive and you have to put out these big, big, big entertainments mm -hmm. so they're going to attract the most number of people. Um, and um, the, those opportunities suddenly resurfaced again in uh, these limited series opportunities on streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I think it's just the storytelling ad adapting to a new medium, the way it had from the oral tradition of telling stories to the written word, to radio, to then film, to television. And there's a, there's a new medium and a new opportunity for telling stories. So mm -hmm. uh, I'd see it as a progression. Okay. And then just finally, I think I'm talking to you in New York. What are you, what are you up to at the moment? Or can you tell us? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in I Miami. Don't mean... I'm oh, you're in my, Miami. Uh, okay, sorry. in-laws in for Thanksgiving. Um, Wonderful. Uh, let's see. What am I up to? Work-wise. Well, like, yeah, season two of the found, of yes. Foundation is going to come out next year. Um, I did two independent movies uh, last year. With one was directed by my brother called Brave the Dark um, mm. and another one called Reawakening that was shot in London. So those will come out next year. Great. Um, and then, you know, I'm always looking for, for great stories and great opportunities, you know. Yeah. So I, I do a lot of reading. I say no quite a bit, you know. Uh, yeah, they've announced season three of Foundation. So other than that, I'm not sure what else is coming up next year, but something will. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, thank you for saying yes to this interview. Uh, I will urge people because it's available to watch on Sky Arts now. They just go to their box and put in The Ghost of Bridget Harris. It's, it's a delightful watch. And I thought I knew all about your dad. Uh, so it was lovely to spend time with you and indeed uh, chat about your dad. So thanks a lot, Jared. Bless you. Thank you so much. Jared Harris there talking to me about his career, but ostensibly and primarily about his father. Richard Harris, who featured in the brilliant documentary, The Ghost of Richard Harris, which, as I say, was on Sky Arts last week, but is still available on your Skybox to watch now, and it's well worth a watch. Up next, Million Dollar Pigeons. Now you're welcome back to the last part of Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now released this week is a fascinating new documentary called Million Dollar Pigeons. It's an Irish documentary and it's about the strange and passionate world of pigeon fanciers. People who race and I suppose collect pigeons but they collect them to race known as fanciers. Big books, sweat, tears and sleepless nights are invested into these feathered athletes. Yet on race day 
all they can do is wait and hope and pray their pigeons come back and hopefully they come back first. At the centre of the documentary is a very charismatic Irish man, an Irish pigeon fancier called John O'Brien, a father of two. He has 60 pigeons, including race winner Big Balls that he routinely trains. Citing an experience while hallucinating to do with Leonardo da Vinci, he got into pigeons. Flying under the radar are a group of pigeon masters from the US, Thailand, China and South Africa competing in one of the most lucrative bird races in South Africa and it's a fascinating documentary full of strange and interesting characters not least of all the very charismatic John O'Brien it's directed by Gavin Fitzgerald who previously directed the documentary Conor McGregor Notorious and a brilliant Liam Gallagher documentary as it was and Gavin joins me in the studio Gavin how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks so much for the lovely intro. No problem. It was a fascinating documentary. I'll plead a slight over-interest in this. My best mate grew up in Cordoff and Blanchardstown. His dad kept pigeons and we were always fascinated by them because we were allowed in. We didn't quite understand it. So when I heard about this, I wanted to talk to you. And it's not a disappointment because it's fascinating. What led you into it? I, I think it's something you brought up there. It, it is a mysterious mm. element. There's something old archaic about any pigeon club that you walk into so the first time i went into one you know i realized they're on you know it's pen and paper it's fax machine it's 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 called a landline you know it's yeah. a, it's this fading you know community of people so 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 the, the place looks like it's from a different era and and that for me uh, really interested me but what what drew me in probably was was just the humor of the world yeah. i just really like fully grown men having you know having it out nearly to blows over over uh the price of a pigeon or or somebody who beat someone last week and they're you know they just they just kind of rip it out of each other yeah and, and uh i saw a lot of comedy in that because the pigeon's funny you know it waddles around it it has like a there's a cheekiness to the pigeon because they're so comfortable with humans yeah and and, and that um so that warmth was, was probably what, what drew me into the world but it's it, as you mentioned in the the introduction. It, it was the the high stake races, international races that that I felt would would drive uh, drive the film. Yeah. So there's two narratives, if you want. There's this massive one in particular in South Africa, which is I don't want to give any spoilers, but has dubious financing and things like that. And certainly, well, people can watch it for themselves. But it's called the Million Dollar Race, and we'll get to that in a second. And then at the centre, we have John O'Brien, this pigeon fancier from Clondalkin uh, Pigeon Club. But talk first about this race in South Africa. So you know, traditionally working class sport pigeon racing as far as I understand it and yet this is as the name implies a race that's been there for 25 years where they give away a million dollars in prize money so what, what what's that race about why did you want to put that at the centre of the film well I suppose uh, there's been films made before at a more local level so this allowed the film to be bigger mm-hmm. um, allowed you to enter different worlds and that's what we really did was we, we we featured characters from all over the globe that's complicated because you mm. have um a lot of communication you know throwing a global pandemic and all that stuff <laughs> uh, and i should say you, there's parts in america there's parts in thailand so it seemed like a production nightmare yeah well i, I actually i couldn't go to thailand because we couldn't go at the time yeah. so we had to film that remotely and okay. i'd be on zoom doing the interviews it was it was <sighs> It was tricky. Yeah. But well, it didn't look like that, so fair play to you. Yeah, no, I think we, you know, it, it ultimately all gels together, but I suppose that was the puzzle and just kind of picking the right characters that represent um, all the exciting and kind of mad things that's going on in the pigeon industry. And, and that's 
very much to do with the influx of cash and a lot of that's coming from China um, where you know there's a, there's an underground scene out there where a lot of rich people uh, have pigeons mm. and they want to buy the best pigeons in the world and they come from this side of the world from Belgium places like that and uh, they're willing to pay yeah. you know crazy money for them and, and, and that's that's impacting the whole industry including yeah. the guys in Clondalk and it, it, it really has a knock-on effect yeah and it's banana stuff as you show in the documentary like towards the end there's talk of two million dollars for one pigeon so that's one, one of the narrow strands is this big race in South Africa that as I say is murky at best and that's a, po- <laughs> a polite way of putting it but then we have John O'Brien who's this pigeon fancier in Clondalkin but he wants to enter this race in South Africa and he's I suppose the glue that holds the whole thing together very charismatic guy how did you find him? Uh, pretty much all the characters in the film we found either either through you know me attending various pigeon events yeah. <laughs> or 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 just you know re- using research with uh we, we did this film with with uh, venom films and work with really great researchers and um we get we get as many characters as possible on zoom calls and that was how we found john and and john just really uh the first zoom call you kind of think uh he's got that yeah that, that it factor um he had that passion he was a young man as well mm. in an old man sport yeah um he had something to prove you know so so yeah john just seemed like the the natural choice to go with now i mentioned he's charismatic and and don't take this as a criticism but some of the other people we met in the or we meet in the documentary are strange not necessarily people I want to sit down and have dinner with I'm particularly thinking of a particularly egomaniacal guy in the States who's telling everyone he's famous now in the pigeon world everywhere he goes there seemed like a weird guy in Belgium I think it was who was running all sorts of things online I mean does it no disrespect to pigeon fanciers but does it attract a unique type of personality oh definitely I, th- I think the first time I you know got on the phone with the with the pigeon fancier you know, you can't get them off the phone, which is which is a good sign. Yeah. Um. They they're so engrossed in their own in that world, like that is everything to them. Um. The the their reputation is very important. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just they live and breathe pigeons. I mean, some of them they when I say breathe, they they will they will get a condition called pigeon lung and die from it because they, they this is the people themselves this is the people because they, they will spend so much time in the lofts they can develop that condition and they and instead of wearing a mask or not not or giving it up they they will they will they will die for their birds so the the, the it's it's like it it some someone described it to me as as a disease being yeah. a pigeon fancier yeah <laughs> right. so of course the people that involved in the film um you know they are quirky characters they are out there um but, but you know, I I I have a fondness for for all of them, um, you know. Uh, but I I also like kind of backing the little guy, you know. Yeah. I think if you if you there's a little bit of a play on how the capitalist world is, and and um, you know the the ones who have it all, you know, they don't really get their hands dirty as much, and mm-hmm. um, so and they're up against it because if if you have less money trying to enter a race, um, it's it's just uh, it's a numbers game, and it's hard yeah. to compete with them. Yeah, and I, you know, what really comes across in the film is that this sport may be in severe danger of, I don't want to say dying out, but changing dramatically because there are some very rich people very interested in it now. Oh yeah, there's there's um, the the race in Thailand that we cover in the film. Uh, it's owned by one of the richest people in Thailand. Mm. So that that's that's nice that you know if you're going to win a race, you're 
you know, you've got the backing there from somebody who has a bit of cash. Uh, you know, it's it's weird. There's there's lots of famous people who, who keep pigeons, including, you know, the Queen and mm. Mike Tyson. And so it, it really is this like <laughs> disease, you know, that <laughs> gets into people. And some of them have lots of money and some of them have very little money. Together, they they really they they they, they connect over uh, and argue over over pigeons, and and it's their world. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the the money thing is maybe creating a bit of a divide, yeah, you know, in the yeah. industry. That um, comes across all right. Yeah. And tell me this, uh, animal welfare, uh, and it's not something I've given much thought to the, you know, the welfare of pigeons in the past, but when it comes to pigeon racing, like some of the pigeon fanciers refer to animal rights people, somewhat disdainfully at times, but are there animal welfare questions about this? I mean, on one point, you see these pigeons racing and you think that's probably what they're born to do. But on the other hand, they're in these very tight coops, sometimes traveling from Dublin to South Africa. Like, are there animal welfare concerns? Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, I think it's really great that organizations such as uh, PETA, they, they, that they exist and they keep an eye on these races um, because there's plenty of races out there that, that do, you know, really dangerous things with pigeons, drive them out to sea, keep going further and mm. further. And, you know, these kind of races... Um, uh, should be stopped, but you know their their mission is to stop pigeon racing entirely. And like, I mean, but well, Pat's well, mission is yeah, that's their mission okay. on their website, which you wouldn't be in favour of. Well, first of all, I think it's keeping a very uh, old tradition alive, which, mm-hmm. which which I think is fascinating. But also, I think that um, uh, if they stop pigeon racing tomorrow, I mean, what would happen to all the pigeons? I mean, the the pigeons have a good life <laughs> comparatively to the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they live you know up to 30 years in the lofts mm-hmm. uh, whereas on the street they might only live like five years okay um so they, they are treated treated very well um you know and generally is what i've seen uh, they you know they're given the best diets they're they are free when they fly mm-hmm. a lot of them some of them are kept for breeding they're, they're, it's it's a contentious issue mm-hmm. um but but i would favor being on the side of it the, the tradition uh keeping alive okay what i really liked about the film was it didn't quite go where I want, and I, I'm really careful not to give spoilers, but it's not rocky, uh, you know what I mean? It's not, what happens to John isn't where I expected it to go. It's not a neat little bow, let's say. So I, I, I think that's good, because I thought I knew where it was going and there was going to be this heroic moment, and it didn't quite pan out like that. But mm. I've said too much. Let me ask you this in closing. I mentioned this million-dollar race in South Africa, and I've alluded to it. It was dodgy. Uh, have the people behind that race had any correspondence with you about this film? Um, it, they They... They ha- some of them. I don't think any of them have seen it yet, um, but they're certainly aware of it of it existing. Um, I think it's fair and uh, you oh know, sure, absolutely. Uh, we 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 really you know I think we portrayed it in in, in a fair way. Um, there is basically a villain in the film. You could call her the Cruella de Vil of, yes, of, pigeons. of pigeons. You certainly could, yeah. Um, so you know, as a filmmaker, you, you know it's it's a gift when you're when you come across somebody who can play a villain because. Drama films always have villains, but with documentaries, they're hard to find. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so just it's it's um, she may not like it, but but 
everything in the film is betrayed in a way that that is that is more than fair yeah okay and no solicitor's letters have arrived she is a solicitor so we we will see okay (laughs) indeed watch this space let me ask you this uh finally outside of the documentary which i should say is called million dollar pigeons it's on release from this friday the 25th of november you can see it in the ifi you can see it in the lighthouse seeing the palais in galway as well right i mentioned the various things you did and we don't have a huge amount of time left but i really enjoyed your documentary about liam galler as it was and as it happened I only watched it recently enough because I'd taped it as we say in the old days <laughs> and I'm, ju- I'm just wondering uh, you know it seems to me he's become it's the only way to say is a nicer guy less argumentative and I'm a big fan of his music but he was he okay to deal with I got the sense he was because he was very open with you in that documentary uh, yeah you know that I kind of when I went into that film and landed there I was expecting this chaos that you associate with yeah. Oasis and it was just like family time you know the man had grown up um, so he, he, he was uh, you know really uh, he's, a, he's a really nice guy actually and, and, and was easy to deal with but he can be he can be uh, he can be equally you know tricky as well yes um, and uh, you know sometimes I call him Krusty the Clown from that uh, scene in The Simpsons where he come in and he does his lines and he's out of there before you kind of get him to two years. <laughs> you know, he 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 has a, runs his own schedule. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Enough said. Well, listen, uh, that was uh, the documentary as it was, which is a great documentary. So is Million Dollar Pigeons, which I say is on release from this Friday, the twenty fifth of November. As it as it was, and Million Dollar Pigeons are directed by Gavin Fitzgerald, who was with me in studio. Gavin, thanks a million. Thanks so much. Gavin Fitzgerald there talking to me about his documentary Million Dollar Pigeons and my thanks to Gavin for coming into studio. That's it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, please do so. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I'll remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on News Talk. Thank you for listening. We'll do it all again next week and have a safe week ahead.